we're going to have a very inaccurate book, and that's too bad. No, but I don't blame you entirely. Be accurate, I no, right. Okay. Well, accurate is that nobody's ever done a better job than I'm doing as president, that I can tell you. Hello and welcome to Peach Potty, Georgia Politics Podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are back together with the whole gang again today. Megan Payne, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me back. And Luke Boggs, thanks for coming back on. It's always a pleasure to be with you, Kyle. So on this week's show, we are going to take our first post-Labor Day look at the Abrams and Kemp race for governor. Labor Day is kind of the traditional kickoff of the fall campaign season, and so we're going to be in a two-month sprint to the election. Um, Key to this has been Brian Kemp's pivot towards the center, which is where it looks like this race is going to be fought. So we'll check in on that race and talk about that pivot to the center, what it means for those two candidates. For our second topic this week, we're going to talk about the growing influence of dark money in our politics and a new group in Georgia founded by um, some Georgia ethics groups, former state senator Josh McCoon and uh, former conservative activist Debbie Dooley. Um, They have a new group to combat dark money in Georgia state politics, uh, but an interesting pairing of folks who are are forming that organization and trying to push back on on dark money in our politics. And then uh, for our last couple topics this week, we're just going to riff off a couple of things that were in the news today. We're recording on Monday, September... Tuesday. We're recording on Tuesday, September 4th. In the Washington Post today... uh, Excerpts of a new book by Bob Woodward about the Trump administration were released, and there are just some absolutely bananas anecdotes that we just wanted to talk through. Um, Really surreal moments about what's actually going on in the White House, at least coming out of the excerpts in that book. And then also on Tuesday, September 4th, this was the first day of the uh, Brett Kavanaugh hearings for his nomination to the Supreme Court. Um, So I know Luke caught a little bit of those, and we're going to talk a little bit about what to expect in those hearings this week. Um, And then we'll give a full download and our full thoughts on these uh, most likely next week uh, once these hearings conclude. Um, But let's start with our first topic this week. So Labor Day is sort of the unofficial kickoff of the fall campaign season. And both candidates, both Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams, have really uh, pushed their look towards the center of the electorate. And we've seen this uh, come up for Brian Kemp in a couple of different ways. He has said in the last week that he, as governor, he would only sign a religious freedom bill that mirrors federal legislation that was supported by both Democrats and Republicans in the 1990s. There's some debate over what that legislation actually does, but it's also an interesting a pivot for him away from claims that he made about standing up to the radical left and the politically correct on uh, religious freedom issues. So that's been one way in which he's pivoted. And then another way in which he's pivoted has been his changing rhetoric on immigration. Um, let's play a little bit of his first ad from the primary. And then the second piece you're going to hear is his uh, a, a piece from his latest ad, which is definitely a general election tone. Um, here, the, here are those two ads back to back. I'm Brian Kemp. I'm so conservative. I blow up government spending. I own guns that no one's taking away. My chainsaw's ready to rip up some regulations. I got a big truck just in case I need to round up criminal illegals and take them home myself. Yep, I just said that. I'm Brian Kemp. If you want a politically incorrect conservative, that's me. And here's the latest ad he put out for the general. I'm Brian Kemp, and I believe in Georgia. I believe our future is about growing jobs, not government. Investing in early, locally controlled education, not one size fits all. I believe in helping our most vulnerable, but requiring work from those who can, and as always, rewarding legal, not illegal behavior. I'm Brian Kemp. I believe Georgia's best days are ahead, and I'd be honored to have your vote. 
so yeah, very different tones from Brian Kemp as he turns his campaign towards the general election. What do you guys think, particularly on immigration to start, what do you guys think of um, his changing rhetoric on that issue? So I think that it's, you know, kind of as you've already set it up to for us to say, it's totally expected. Um, that is just part of campaign life at this time of year. Um, but what is interesting is how much he's backed off, at least the immigration one. Now, granted, this is in word only. He's no longer talking about rounding up illegals in his truck, which I think is a positive change personally. But he really, you know, just taking it from a like rewarding legal behavior standpoint is a stance that I actually didn't really expect him to take. It's a little bit further to the center than I expected at this point, which is a nice surprise, I will say. It, it, it appears that our friend Kogi Hall has had a moderating influence on the Kemp campaign. Uh, if you're out there, Kogi, good, good job on the messaging, man, if this is you. But uh, no, I, I mean, it's just, it's exactly, you know, what Megan said, but to take it a step further, it's just, this is political campaigns 101 in the era of, of smart campaigners on the right in Trump land because you you can't do this as your general election strategy and expect to win. Georgia has had a pretty good formula for Republicans for a while and a good playbook that they use. And by good, I mean effective, not like good as I approve of it. But I mean, basically this sounds like what Casey Cagle would have said. Sounds like what Nathan Deal probably would have said if he could run for a third term. So I'm just not surprised by this. The The thing that you can't count on, though, is that if Kemp is elected, what he will do policy-wise. Because I feel like, despite this much more moderate tone that he's taking, he probably would take the ball far further down the field than Kemp or Cagle would have been willing to do. And so while he's moderating the tone, the fact that he still is harping on this is, is quite clear to me. Kemp's made immigration a big part of his campaign, and I would be surprised if we didn't see something on that issue if he got elected. Yeah, I wonder, Yeah, I basically wonder who Brian Kemp is being dishonest with when you look at his rhetoric from the primary to his rhetoric now. When I talked to Jessica Salaji, when we were recapping Republican races earlier this summer, she told me that one of the things that was appealing about Brian Kemp was that under the deal administration and under the Republicans that have really been in leadership since the Republican takeover of the Republican takeover of the gold dome in the early two thousands, that more often than not social conservatives, conservative hardline conservatives on issues that weren't economic took a back seat to jobs, 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 and everything about Republican governance was all about jobs. Brian Kemp in some ways was different during the primary and that he made, you know, very clear that he was willing to say things and do things that were not politically correct. It's a part of his rhetoric over and over again. And so I think it's an open question for conservatives about, is this something where Brian Kemp and the conservative flank of the Republican Party are kind of looking at each other and winking and saying, yeah, this is just kind of how it's got to be. We've got to say nice things. But but when we get into office, you know, the policies that I talked about are what we're going to pursue. Or has he put conservatives out to dry again, because the interests that would push back on this immigration position, and and we'll talk about his religious liberty position too, are the economic jobs, jobs, jobs interests that have pushed back against a lot of things uh, that social conservatives and hardline conservatives have wanted Republicans to do in Atlanta. But I don't know, this is a part of something that I just find the press and sort of the overall conversation around politics in the state sort of accepts as normal, which is this pivot to the center. When in reality, you know, at least in this instance, and on these couple of issues, these, you know, this is a completely different sort of change in tone, that is hard to square one with the other. What do you guys think about just that 
that concept, do we kind of take that for granted as something, oh, politicians just do this and they have to do this? Well, I want to follow up on one thing that you said, because I, I, just to like really hit it home, I think the real difference between a Governor Deal and a potential Governor Kemp is that Governor Deal served as a moderating influence on the House and Senate a lot of times. There's many bad pieces of legislation that never make it to Deal's desk because he was just like, don't send this to me because I will veto it and... There's plenty of backroom conversations that I caught wind of being at the Capitol that, you know, were to that effect. Whereas if Brian Kemp is there, I think a lot more legislation that is much further to the right on social issues will get to his desk. And I think once it gets there, he'd be far more likely to sign it. Now, as far as the pivot to the center, at least in the case of Brian Kemp and this campaign, it's really he's just, you know, playing a different volume before a different audience. You know, it's it's. It's not that strange to me because he hasn't, at least from what I've seen, like changed any policy positions or changed how he feels about anything. It's just that he's like selling it in a different way. And I think on that front, that's just like marketing 101 in the sense that, you know, if you're before a hometown audience, you can be a little bit more familiar and a little bit more, uh, you know, loose. Whereas if you're going between a bunch, you know, before a lot of people who really don't know who you are, you have to really present yourself in a, in a focused way. Um, and so I, I think on that front, this is with this specific campaign, it's not like Kemp isn't the same guy who wishes he could round up all the illegals in the back of his pickup truck. He still is that guy. He just isn't emphasizing that, but he's still supporting the policy positions that, you know, let him do that equivalently as, as governor. Right. Well, I think you totally hit the nail on the head. You said something to the effect of it is like playing to your audience. And as a former theater kid, absolutely. Like, that's exactly what is happening here. He's playing to his audience. He has changed the rhetoric a little bit. You said, you know, he's playing in a different volume. But yeah, he's just, I do, I think we do take it for granted. And I think we do assume that it's going to happen because that is what happens. And you do have to adjust your messaging depending on your audience. Now, I think there's an open question on, I think on immigration, he probably hasn't changed his actual position. He has this, what he calls a track and deport plan, which is basically greater coordination between local law enforcement and federal immigration authorities, the places where there's a lot of optional authority for local governments now. I think he's uh, interested in making that more required um, and giving local governments fewer options to not cooperate with immigration authorities. I don't know that that is as much of a hot button issue on the substance of it, that he would get a ton of pushback from the business community. But the one place where it seems like he would is on religious liberty issues and on what kind of religious liberty bill he'd be willing to sign. And so I I think there's at least some evidence that there may be a change of position Um, on the substance, even though he wasn't very specific about it, when he uh, last week said that he was only willing to support a religious liberty bill that mirrors federal legislation, which has been law since the early 90s. And it was supported by both Democrats and Republicans. It was signed into law by Bill Clinton. Um, That federal legislation has been legislation that actually hasn't been used in the past to protect uh, you know, the Christian majority from advancing uh, civil rights from LGBT Americans, for instance. But he also said in the wake of the Masterpiece Cake Shop decision earlier this year um, that he applauded the decision by the Supreme Court. And he says in a tweet, he says, as governor, I'll stand up to the radical left and politically correct. We will never apologize for protecting religious liberty and living out our faith. Yeah, except for that's not what that even was about. Like, I mean, the case was, but the ruling wasn't. Yeah. And so, well, and that's, so I have this belief particular to this religious liberty issue that there's a lot of talking in code that goes on when you're in front of like conservative activists and conservative grassroots folks, because there is a push from the right for, for instance, for businesses to be allowed to refuse service uh, for, to LGBT Americans for, participating in marriage ceremonies or, or for other reasons. I mean, this was the heart of the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. And at every turn, conservatives who want to court social conservatives in the party 
conservative candidates will say that they will they will not back down in the face of anybody and standing up for people's religious faith. And now the legislation that he has said that he would sign doesn't actually do what I think people come away with when they hear people say, you know, I will stand up for religious faith no matter what. And so I do think that this is one of those where conservative grassroots activists might have heard one thing and then Kemp is going to turn around and do another thing. And that's why I kind of want to interrogate this bigger question of like pivoting to the center, because for both parties, you know, hard left Democrats, hard right, hard right Republicans, they hear messages during campaigns that their candidates are going to stand up and fight for their issues. And then all too often, particularly from the right, the Republicans have not ended up doing that. And so I I think that this is, you know, an interesting uh, point in our politics. You know, they're not really being honest on on this either, because as as has been mentioned by us previously, and I'm pretty sure just a second ago, this would not do half of what they, they would think it would do. And it wasn't crafted to do that. And I don't think courts would hold it up as being a way to uh, discriminate against uh, gay couples. And Georgia needs to do a good faith effort to actually protect religious liberty and civil rights because right now in Georgia, it's still on the books uh, that like gay marriage is illegal. And if the Supreme Court, uh, you know, if we get Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court, which uh, we'll be discussing a little bit later, there's a slight possibility that they might, uh, you know, reverse that ruling and gay marriage would become yet again illegal in, in Georgia. So it would be. It, very advisable to look at all of the law in this area and try to improve it in a positive way that is uh, you know, following its true purpose, which is to prevent discrimination rather than exacerbate it. And I'm, I'm frustrated that uh, we haven't had the ability to have that conversation in Georgia due to the fact that so many people, uh, you know, I mean, really, it's not even that many people. It's a small but very loud minority on the far right of the Republican Party that want this to happen. And from what we've seen from the deal administration, it's it's not a priority of the party. And the, you know, the business community has fought it pretty hard. And I, I just am frustrated that we continuously are brought into this debate and it's pretty much presented as a, you know, one way streak of how far to the right will we go on it? Whereas what Georgia really needs is a comprehensive reform in this area because right now the only thing that you can have a state action on as far as discrimination goes is age that age discrimination is the only thing and everything else whether it's sex or gender or religious affiliation or race you have to handle federally and you know it's it's time that we fix all of this and i i wish that was at least part of the conversation well that'd be nice considering you know for those who are regular listeners, you guys know that I'm a member of the LGBT community. And a lot of this stuff is really concerning to me. It, you know, I choose to live in the South because I love it, but stuff like this just makes me worry that I'm going to have to uproot and move at some point in my life and not because I actually want to. Well, and to be clear, I don't want to see Kemp sign a more expansive RIFRA bill that gives a license to discriminate, but I, I think that part of what you see that goes on in the Republican Party is they make big promises they don't deliver on. And so then the base looks for somebody crazier who's willing to do it. And the interesting thing about Kemp's win in the primary was there, I think, was real legitimate concern that he was the one crazy enough to do the crazy things. And I think it'd be good if the business wing wins out. I mean, this is the the story of the deal administration. But, you know, it it does sort of breed that backlash that I think we would be better off without if, if Republicans would actually be honest about these issues, not only to everyone, but to, to even their own base. Can I be real pedantic here for a second? Yeah. So when I was reading up on, you know, just current events related to RIFRA, and I saw the Kemp quote unquote quote, um, what I noticed was that it was being reported as Kemp saying that he wouldn't sign something that didn't mirror federal RIFRA and that he wouldn't sign something that went beyond federal RIFRA. And those are two very different words to me, beyond versus mirror. Do we have access to the actual quote? Because if it's 
I'm not sure which one is more concerning at this point. Like, if he's okay with, like, a kind of hemmed-in Rifra, then, like, okay, that's not quite necessarily a big deal. But, you know, just the word beyond implies a lot more than the word mirror. And I want to understand what he said and what his motivations are and what he says he'll sign. Do we know? So the quote that I have is from he was talking to a gathering of tourism folks in the state. And um, he said, he, I'm pretty sure he was referring to the exact same text as the federal RIFRA bill from 1993. Um, but he said, it's time to pass the bill, put that behind us so we can move on. It's the same bill Nathan Deal voted on when he was in Congress. That's all I'm committing to do. Anything else, I'll veto it. And so I think my understanding of his position at that point is, you know, the re- the core of this is that the federal 1993 bill was supposed to, to apply religious protections to people from actions from both federal and state governments. And then later on, the Supreme Court said that the federal government couldn't didn't actually have constitutional authority to provide that protection from state governments. And so there was a push after that ruling for states to sign the same protections in the federal law into their state laws. And then over time, this issue went dormant for a little while. And when it came back, these bills were opportunities to go beyond the protections that were assured in federal law. And they were coming at a time after the legalization of gay marriage. And so and so they were being there was a push from the Christian right to to put in things that allowed, for instance, the refusal of, of service. Um, there was a bill in 2016 in the legislature that just flat out said that businesses did not have to provide services if they conflicted with a sincerely held religious belief. But but that's, I think that's the dividing line. And this is a conversation that'll be ongoing. We'll We'll get to this in another episode too, as to whether or not the federal text from the 90s can be used as legal justification to refuse service. I think courts have mostly said no, um, but we're hoping to talk to Jeff Graham from Georgia Equality, who has pointed to rulings where that opening may actually be there. But that the legal issues there, I think we're going to revisit in a future future show and we can talk to him because I think there's some debate over that. But yeah, as far as I know, he w- he is committed to signing a bill that that does not allow refusal of service under at least the original reading of RIFRA. So another sort of battleground that this election is going to be fought over is the true definition of what the political center in Georgia is because of because of both candidates looking in that direction. AJC had a nice article on this where they sort of laid out the different frames of what the center of the state's political views could be. To Kemp, he is somebody who thinks that the center still cares about limiting state spending, lowering state taxes, and expanding gun rights. Abrams, on the other hand, thinks that the center cares about the common sense gun reforms, gun restrictions that she's talked about, and Medicaid expansion. And, um, you know, they both talk a lot about education and fully funding education, whether or not they have policies that are actually going to do that, I think is open for debate. We took a look at some polling uh, before, you know, in preparation for this episode. So so I'm just uh, interested from you guys, where... Where does your gut tell you the political center is and and what the winning issues are going to be? And does that give either one of these candidates an upper hand? I mean, education is clearly just a hot button item all around. And I think the ultimate crux of the issue is that I don't think there's anyone in Georgia advocating advocating for bad education. I think and I think that that's kind of what gets confusing when we see people who don't necessarily agree with funding education the way we want, it feels like they're advocating for not educating our children. And I say our children, you know, collectively, I don't have any. Mine have fur. Um, so it's just interesting the way I think the, you know, education is definitely going to be the hot button issue, but how they talk about it and how they fund it is going to be very different. Stacey Abrams has this very pie in the sky idea and is recently talking about expanding the Hope Scholarship to cover undocumented students, um, which sounds wonderful, but the state can barely afford the Hope Scholarship. So how are we going to balance that? 
and she wants to focus on public schools. And Kemp just has a very different view that I'm less familiar with, so I won't comment on as highly. Um, but I think that that's really where the center is. The center is education. And then shortly out from that, gun rights on either side. And then, you know, you can go on from there. Yeah. Lo- looking at this polling, I think it's interesting. You know, you mentioned guns at the end there. Uh, the the April AJC GOP poll, was that, was, was that of just GOP voters? Yeah. So all of this is AJC polling that we're looking at. Um, in the primary, they had separate polls for Democrats and Republicans where they they polled those primary races and then they polled some issues. Um, in January, there was a poll that was not split up by party, and that was mostly confined to issues. So we'll post the links to those polls in show notes, but the, this is the polling information we're working off of. Okay. Um, because the April GOP poll had that uh, 46% of GOP voters wanted uh, laws of the sale of firearms to be this basically stay the same, but 45% wanted more strict and only 7% wanted less strict. And I really, really doubt we'll see Brian Kemp reflecting that message. You know, I, I imagine he will be firmly on the less strict side of things. And I, I think the really other big um, thing from this poll is and this is from the January one that was uh, with everyone is that 73% of Georgians support Medicaid expansion and on the same in that January poll, the most important issue facing uh, Georgia, 21% sec healthcare. And I mean, we're seeing that too. in the campaigns I'm working on is that when people are knocking on doors and reporting back the issues that voters are talking about, healthcare is still very, very present. Like healthcare is still, one that people talk about a lot. And I think it's slowly but surely being less and less connected to Obama. And I think the longer that uh, President Obama is out of office, that somehow, magically, it's just fading from people's memory that Medicaid expansion is a part of Obamacare and that if you support that, it's an Obama-related thing. And I, I think it's becoming far less politicized. And, I mean, the numbers really, really are starting to hit people, I think, of how much money it would be bringing to Georgia if we were to expand Medicaid. And I think even though uh, some folks' hospitals might not have closed in their counties, they're hearing about it happening uh, to you know their fellow Georgians and getting concerned about it. So I, I, I think the political singer is you know not as easy to define, though, despite saying all that, because there's plenty... Political parties make everything seem like it's very uniform and that because I'm a Democrat, I support all these things. And because someone else is a Republican, they support all these things. I mean, the truth is, is that like there's plenty of people who would like all schools to be private schools and charter schools and also think Medicaid expansion should happen and also think guns should be more regulated. And there's probably somebody out there that has the exact opposite of those positions. And there's no telling what party either one of those people are in or who they might be willing to vote for the the parties really really simplify this way way more than you could think and and then also on top of that it's the politicians are holding positions that are far more to the polls than i think most people are on some of these issues and so you're you're asking a very philosophical question kyle (laughs) moral of my rant Kyle, what do you think? Why do we have to answer all the hard questions? Your yeah, turn. seriously. <laughs> yeah, I become the moderator in our in our three mic show. Yeah, I don't know. I think the healthcare is the missing issue. I think from the AJC's frame of that, um, healthcare is also I think the biggest issue where Democrats offer something really concrete and something that has a lot of money behind it in the form of Medicaid expansion. It's a lot of free or basically free federal money. Republicans on this issue always talk about bringing in the free market, getting government out of the way, cutting regulations. And none of those things, I think, either in a concrete substantive matter or in a way that's easy to message, make it clear to people that electing Republicans will result in their health care getting better. Um, whereas when you look at Medicaid expansion, that is maybe about half a million Georgians that don't have health care right now. They don't have any health insurance. They don't have reliable ways to pay for their 
health services that they need and Medicaid expansion and getting Medicaid coverage is a concrete benefit in people's lives. And even if you're not a Medicaid recipient, if you're, if you're somebody who makes more money, but who would, you know, so would not receive Medicaid coverage under this, you're not seeing concrete things from the other side that are actually going to affect you either. And so I don't, you know, that may be one where there's a split on who seems the most credible in terms of solving that issue. I think education kind of ends up being a wash because they all kind of say the same things, but it's, you know, it's either the conservative flavor is full funding plus school choice and the more liberal favor is flavor is full funding and focus on public schools. Um, you know, and then I don't, the place where everybody has looked at and said, maybe there's some crossover potential is if God forbid some terrible shooting happens close to the election and guns become sort of a central issue in this campaign. It does seem like the conversation around common sense gun reforms is much closer to where the polling says people are. Um, whereas you having greater access to guns, constitutional carry may come back up as, as an issue where you don't even have gun permits. You just have a constitutional right to carry and you don't need any piece of paper that says you can exercise that right. If that becomes a central focus in that cam in this campaign, that's a place where Abrams position may pull people in um, but the other thing about this is these are all policy issues, and we all know that politics is only like 4% about policy and 96% about personality and who people like and who's more popular. So, you know, the center, where the political center is may not actually reflect who wins this election, um, which is one of the most frustrating things about politics to me. Um, so another issue that has uh, gotten a lot of discussion in the last week or so has been what Georgia's governor and Georgia's legislature can do for veterans. Uh, Kemp put out a proposal where he would limit uh, state income taxes for veterans, um, cut those taxes pretty significantly. And then he took other positions on veterans issues, including being a strong advocate when the discussion of closing bases comes up. We haven't had one of these base closing commissions since 2005, but I, I think this is usually what everybody says about veterans in the state of Georgia is that you're going to fight to keep those bases from being closed um, because those bases are big economic centers in rural parts of the state where there basically is nothing else. Um, Stacey Abrams also says that she would fight uh, on these basic base closing issues. And she, in her veterans plan, she talks about uh, getting better pathways to higher education and jobs and mental health and substance abuse treatment services for veterans, places where issues that aren't veteran specific, but are issues that veterans like all Georgians could benefit from. And so that was kind of the an issue that they both discussed, they were both kind of on the same page for once, um, that they both discussed on the trail this week. What, what do you think about, um, these proposals and what the state should be doing for veterans? I mean, I think veterans deserve our support. You know, I'm, I'm on the same page with both of them essentially, or, or at least in the same book. It seems like they're reading out of the same book on this one, which is a nice change. You know, I think our veterans, whether we agree with the wars they fought in or the things that they've done, they're still serving the country, and some of them did it not because they wanted to, but because it was a an in, a means to an end. It was the only way they could afford an education. And we heap a lot of abuse on our veterans, both emotionally and physically. And so I do think that as a nation that has a standing army, it is our job to help our veterans, period. So if you know, if if we have two candidates that support the veterans, I'm I'm all for that. Um, well, we'll leave that discussion on the candidates there for now. As you can imagine, this Kemp Abrams race is going to be central to our show as we head towards November. Uh, but let's talk a little bit now about the influence of dark money in our politics and a new group here in Georgia that is uh, sprouting up to combat dark money in this upcoming election. Um, so 
there's a new group with an interesting cast of characters, including uh, Republican State Senator Josh McCoon, Sarah Henderson from Common Cause Georgia, William Perry from the Georgia Ethics Watchdogs, and Kay Goodwin from or Kay Godwin from the Georgia Conservatives in Action. Um, and then in addition to to those folks, you also have Debbie Dooley of the Atlanta Tea Party. They have all come together to found this new group that is going to file ethics complaints and take a close look at the source of dark money in our politics in this election season. Dark money, if you're not familiar with it, is money that is spent in our politics that is basically untraceable. Um, It can come from nonprofit groups that do uh, issue advocacy primarily. If they do issue advocacy instead of primarily political activities, they don't have to disclose who their donors are. And so you see a growing number of these nonprofit groups that either do issue advocacy on their own or they donate to political action committees who are required to report their donors. But in that instance, the political action committee reports a donation from a nonprofit who then doesn't have to report their donations. And so it's kind of a way to funnel money in without much accountability. Um, This was an issue that was really key in the lieutenant governor's primary this time around. Jeff Duncan had about $3 million in dark money behind him to fight against David Schaefer. Um, And this was a race that didn't have a lot of money spent otherwise. And so this dark money was credited really with helping Duncan over the top in a way that he probably could not have done without, without that money at all. This is also, you know, one of the legacies of John McCain who prior to the citizens United ruling uh, teamed up with Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold to pass some of the strictest campaign finance regulations that were ever passed in the Congress. And those have since been whittled away by court cases and by uh, money like this that is basically unregulated and unaccountable. So so what do you guys think about the issue of dark money? Do you feel like it has influence in our politics? And, and what do you think we should do about it? So like money in politics is a malignant cancer that we're all very aware of and nobody wants to do anything about. Uh, I have some thoughts on that when it comes to the the brief Kavanaugh talk we're going to be doing. But it's it's a serious problem. And on the state level, it might be more serious than it is on the federal level, even though it gets talked about on the federal level significantly more. I mean, there's a lot of research coming out that, um, you know, political ads aren't as effective as they used to be in actually persuading voters still decently effective as far as turnout but when it comes to you know like the presidency or a lot of congressional races your average congressional race there's enough money going around on all sides that eh, it probably cancels itself out but you have situations like jeff duncan or state house races if if there's significant dark money coming in or even just outside money even if it's completely following the rules being super ethical and really well disclosed i mean significant you know dollar amounts in you know like even even below six figures can really really make a difference in uh, some of these smaller races and so it's it's an issue and there's just there's too much money in in politics in general and you know, I, you know, because your question was focused on dark money, I, I would just prefer we get as much money out of politics as possible. I would, you know, be pretty uh, pro having publicly financed elections if that was um, an option, because all all of the money that is currently in the system is really, really making it difficult to know who is influencing uh, these elections and who actually has support versus who's propped up by the money elite in America. And that's, you know, is the end of my Bernie rant. <laughs> well, a lot of people posit that money is the root of all evil. And while I'm not sure that I want to personally take it that far, it definitely complicates politics like you're talking about, Luke. And so it's just it, it's gross. It makes it's another facet of politics that makes it really nasty, potentially. 
And then when you start talking about who donors are, you get into all these privacy issues, which is an up and coming discussion that happens in the tech world and that's happening in real life and that's happening in the medical world. And so, you know, I understand why a lot of these donors are being kept anonymous, but at the same time, there's something to be said for, um, you know, putting your money where your mouth is and coming out and saying, yes, I'm actually the one that's funding these campaigns. And so it's just really gross and dicey and it just makes politics extra muddy. So I, I would be, I'd be totally cool with what you said and have publicly funded elections and just kind of, or, you know, and just get as much of the money and as much of the um, shadiness out of politics as possible and let it be about politics and not about finances. What we saw with Jeff Duncan and David Schaefer in the lieutenant governor primary, that I think is less common for for dark money. What seems to be more common is that a lot of this money has corporate roots and a lot of decisions um, or lower level officials like public service commissioners, a lot of those races are not paid attention to by, you know, broadly by the public, but they are by uh, private economic interests that have interests in how those elections turn out. And so they form these nonprofit organizations that can run ads and fund and fund these ads without, uh, really without a trace. Um, and so that is sort of the, the avenue by which corporate money shapes our politics in a way that I think people wouldn't be very happy about. And it, it's an interesting question for Democrats because this is a, a place where Democrats have had a lot of pressure from their left flank to live up to the ideals that they claim to hold. And there's been this back and forth from the DNC about whether or not they would take money from oil companies and fossil fuel interests. And um, they originally passed a rule within the party saying the party wouldn't accept this money. And then they kind of backed away from the rule with the alleged justification that the rule was actually harming the ability of people, workers who worked for fossil fuel interests to donate to Democratic campaigns. Um, and there's been a lot of frustration from the left about Democrats living up to the the ideal that they claim to believe in um, by rejecting this money. You also see it's pretty common for candidates coming up from the left who rely on small dollar fundraising to publicly state that they refuse any corporate money, any super PAC money, um, that they are not going to let that money into their campaigns. Um, so it you know the the byproduct of clamping down on this money would probably be lesser corporate influence in our elections and not necessarily the sort of uh, untraceable hit job that happened to David Schaefer in that lieutenant governor's race. The The interesting thing about this group, though, locally is in, involved in this group is Debbie Dooley, a well-known conservative activist in the state, and she has sort of made her reputation by using untraceable money or or money that's difficult to trace to fund primary challengers, to encourage primary challengers, and to kind of invade her way and in, in the Tea Party kind of invaded its way into the conservative grassroots. Um, this drew charges of hypocrisy from uh, State Representative Buzz Brockaway. He talked about how Dooley used to criticized legislation that Brockaway had saying that it was a plot to punish conservatives when Brockaway was trying to limit dark money in state and local politics in Georgia. Um, and she also opposed a, a Senate measure in 2015 that would have required some nonprofits to disclose their donors. And now for some reason, Debbie Dooley has had this kind of come to Jesus moment on, on dark money. Um, so it, it's been an interesting progression for, for her um, and in for the conservative grassroots reckoning with some of the money that allowed them to gain influence in the party. And, and now I think maybe is their view is them trying to stop other people from gaining that same kind of influence. Yeah, I was going to suggest that, that this is uh, quite possibly Debbie Dooley uh, realizing that she's become the establishment and now the dark money's after her and she doesn't uh, like it as much. But another uh, individual on this uh 
you know, in this new group is uh, Josh McCoon, which uh, we we love to uh, speak about fondly uh, back when he was running uh, in, in the legislature still. Uh, but uh, on this specific issue, I, I'm going to be kind of curious to see what he does, because while uh, we, we've all disagreed with Josh McCoon about practically everything, uh, the one place where Josh McCoon was really a thorn in the side of everyone in a positive way was on ethics and that he had earlier in his career as a state senator had you know done some pretty unpopular but needed things on ethics in in georgia and i think uh, that should be uh recognized and uh his inclusion in this group is actually probably a positive thing because uh despite his wacky positions on a lot of other issues uh this is one issue where he uh sort of is is uh dare i say a maverick <laughs> josh mccoon cannot be a maverick <laughs> you can be a maverick he, on one he issue he cannot have that title <laughs> all right well yeah th- so this will be interesting to watch to see how this group decides to pursue some of this dark money in the fall and you know i think i think to some extent some there is some concern on whether or not these ethics complaints as they are filed are sort of political weapons to bludgeon your opponents with. We saw a lot of those come up at the end of the primary season. Um, but you do have two people who are often associated with Georgia ethics watchdogs, Sarah Henderson and William Perry involved in that group. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, so let's sort of transition to our final pair of topics. And we were just going to kind of riff off some things that were in the news today. Um, so the first thing that that really caught my eye was a new book that is set to be released by Bob Woodward, uh, formerly of Woodward and Bernstein, uh, Watergate fame. Um, he is putting out a deeply reported book on the Trump White House. It's called Fear. Some excerpts of this book have come out in reporting from the Washington Post and from CNN, and there's just some really bonkers anecdotes of what has been going on in the Trump White House, um, <laughs> including a a story from the book where people regularly are pulling paper off of President Trump's desk for fear that he would sign things that are bad for national security. A lot of the excerpts of this book have focused on the national security establishment and their efforts um, to what Woodward describes as an administrative coup d'etat against President Trump by his own staff and his own national security staff who have referred to him as an idiot who have referred to him as being unwilling and unable to learn about things he doesn't know about. I love this. I love this. I have already purchased or pre-ordered the book. I'm so excited. I just can't help but chuckle every time I read something about it. I think my favorite thing is as I opened the CNN article, it says, warning, this story contains graphic language. I'm like, sweet. This is going to be great. Yeah. I, one of the the most bonkers things that he said was um, after Syrian President Bashar al-Assad launched a chemical attack on civilians in April 2017, uh, Trump like immediately called up his Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, and said, let's fucking kill him. Let's go in. Let's kill the fucking lot of them, presumably talking about Syrians. Um, and then... Mattis got off the phone with Trump after that. And he said to his aide, he said, we're not going to do any of that. We're going to be much more measured. And they eventually gave kind of a limited airstrike in response to this, which is what you would expect from other presidents. Were there any other anecdotes from this that y'all saw that were just, you know, like blew your minds? I, I think the first thing that like needs to be pointed out about this is that there's been a lot of books come out about the Trump administration. I think uh, in, sure, in sheer, like, number of books that are, like, of this variety of reporters, like, getting the inside scoop of what's happening in the White House. I don't know if we have, like, more of those books than we have for previous administrations, but they definitely are getting way, 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 way more attention. And, you know, Omarosa just had her book come out. Uh, Sean Spicer recently released a book. Um we also had Michael Wolf's much talked about book, Fire and Fury. We need to we need to push all of those to the side for a moment. This is freaking Bob Woodward. This is the guy that took down Nixon. Like he has written 
books about, I think, eight presidents. He has been around. He knows how to do this right, and he knows how to get people actually on the record, and he knows how to do the job of a journalist really well. So those other books can like go take a long walk off a short pier as far as the anecdotes in there and the stories in there and like what's happening in the White House. I'm sure some of it falls in line with what Woodward has found, but like in my opinion, this is this is the book that is uh, you know, the one I'm going to actually read because I haven't read the other ones, but I'm going to read this one um because I have a lot of faith in the work that Woodward does. Uh, uh I wish I was being paid by Bob Woodward to say these things, um, but I am not. Um but Bob Woodward, come on our show. Yeah, come on our show, Bob, <laughs> if you're out there. Um but the the thing that I think even just like shows like how thorough the guy is is the washington post which is the publication that woodward still works for um put out a about 11 minute call that he had with trump which it's hilarious so you should definitely listen to it if you have not um where woodward is like explaining to him it's like i really tried and really wanted to get you to you know be interviewed for this book uh but could not do that and what i think was so hilarious about all of that is it sort of confirms the narrative that we were just talking about of like how people were just keeping things from Trump because like Kellyanne Conway is like in the room with him and like Bob Woodward's like, well, I told Kellyanne, like I had this like hour long conversation with her over a lunch that I wanted you for this book. Like she's right there. Just ask her. And so she gets on the phone and she literally is like, yeah, you did ask me about that. And I didn't tell him because it like, the proceed like we went through our procedure and it you know like we didn't approve it and so like kellyanne literally knew that bob woodward wanted uh you know to talk to trump and she didn't even mention it to him because of like some internal procedure they had to prevent you know trump from from <laughs> even knowing that he had asked and the like and woodward had talked to Apparently, I think he said he had reached out to like seven or so people at least, one of which was Lindsey Graham, who actually did just like mention it to Trump. It was hilarious because Trump just like kept saying like, I can't hear this from anybody. And then like, you know, like Bob Woodward would say, it's like, well, I told some senators. It's like, who? Like, tell me specifically who. He's like, well, Lindsey Graham was one. He's like, oh yeah, Lindsey did tell me that. <laughs> so Trump was like very emphatically like, I heard this from no one. And then like Bob Woodward was like, what about Lindsey Graham? He's like, oh yeah, I did hear it from him. But just, I mean, that just shows like the thorough that he followed and you know he uh while he's not constantly sagging where he got each piece of information from it's very clear that he like followed a very clear and clean procedure uh trump even in the interview uh, or or the conversation rather because this wasn't a conversation uh, this wasn't an interview even though it was recorded he actually even said that bob woodward had always been fair to him and like he, he like specifically said that and so it's just like whenever he goes on the tweet storm that is definitely going to happen because this book comes out bob woodward can just like retweet the quote of donald trump saying you've always been fair to me <laughs> and like their conversation is super cordial and you know and it bob woodward very clearly had access and followed procedure and had permission so i'm very excited to read this because compared to all these other books i have a lot of faith that woodward did the job of a journalist and followed and has recordings to back up everything that is in this book and is is well researched so long story short this one, this is the one that I uh, think we'll end up talking about after we get our hands on it. He's got every little bit of the circus in here, too. Like, I love the uh, the Ivanka-Bannon clash that's highlighted. Um, Bannon's like, you're nothing but a fucking staffer. And you walk around the place and act like you're in charge and you're not. You're on staff. And then Ivanka apparently shouts back, I'm not a staffer. I'll never be a staffer. I'm the first daughter. <laughs> And I'm just that like, was my favorite one too. I'm just like I, and and she really used that title. That's what Woodward said. Like she actually said, "I'm the first daughter." Now, granted, I have, you know, I've obviously made her sound like a little complaining child, but like it's just do 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 like just the Trump circus continues, and I am excited about reading about it. Yeah, I can't wait for this book. We may do a Peach Pod book club on this book. 
And then, and then one final thing to hit on before we go today. Today was the opening day of Brett Kavanaugh's hearings for his seat on the Supreme Court. Um, Luke, I know you got to catch a little bit of these hearings. So can you kind of just give us the highlights of day one and anything you're looking forward to the rest of this week? week? Yeah, so uh, shout out to Georgia Law because they actually set up a room and just played the hearings all day. Um I, I was sad to see that I was like the only one in there for for much of it. Um, maybe maybe tomorrow where there's supposed to be more fireworks, more people will be there. So uh, to start off, like today was just basically people reading 10-ish minutes of prepared statements. And then at the end, Kavanaugh had his opening statements. So it was it was really, you know, as far as the Senate uh, encouraging grandstanding, this is the most grandstandy of grandstandy days where people just like uninterrupted get to talk for a bit. The thing that I was really interested in seeing was how would both sides handle this nomination and like what sort of things would we be seeing from the Democrats who might be running for president. What I saw on this first day though was really interesting because the Democrats really, really harped hard on process. They were very, very, obsessed i think rightfully so on process because brett kavanaugh has been in the government for a long time and he's actually been not well not in the singer he's been on the periphery of a lot of really interesting moments in uh american politics for the past you know 20 30 years and so on that front i think it's interesting just how much uh democrats have pushed on not being able to get all of the documents uh from his different times at these different places in government and from what the democratic senators was were saying that a lot of the documents uh got dropped last night like after five and they had to like sort through them and try to get prepared for these hearings in a very short time and they still haven't actually gotten everything that uh they were looking for um, the other thing, too, is that, you know, um, not all Senate traditions are dead because many of the uh, opening statements were quite deferential to Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And Cory Booker especially was just like singing his praises of how good of a person he is and and then pivoting uh, quite elegantly too and that's why i'm so disappointed in you for not following the process as you promised that you would and you know cory booker kamala harris uh amy klobuchar all three names that i've heard at least vaguely uh associated with running for president they all hit on the process stuff and they kept it pretty uh focused on that and then ended their remarks with the more political red meat of and these are the issues that i'm afraid of how you grew along based off the little bit of your record that i have uh the republicans unsurprisingly went with the route of kavanaugh's record and the 300 ish decisions that he's already made and prioritizing the fact that um he has uh oh, they, that the senators have had access to all those decisions which for um nominating a judge that is probably the most important thing though the other documents uh, are are very important the decisions that he's written are of supreme importance i would say um no pun intended <laughs> and uh it is good that they've had access to that but i think these other things are important and i th- i think the the main reason why i know that the republicans don't like talking about it is that they pretty much all tried to deflect that as much as possible and went down the usual brett kavanaugh you're a great guy and you coach soccer teams and all these other great things you do and you're such a nice person and so i i I, i'm gonna be interested to see uh what we see from the committee when they're actually asking questions because that's where uh most of the really interesting sparks fly and then uh brett kavanaugh ended the day uh unsurprisingly to me by heaping mounds and mounds of praise on uh justice kennedy who he was a clerk for so it's unsurprising that he was able to do that well but um i think it was unsurprising to me how many times he brought up not only like justice kennedy as a good person but also justice kennedy as the type of judge that he wants to be and mentioning how he made decisions and the things that were important from him. And I believe he quoted a couple of his decisions in his pretty short opening statement. And um, I'm, I'm interested to see where this is going to go because Kavanaugh has a pretty, you know, he has a very, very 
hard thing to get through, but he is likely to get nominated despite how difficult this hearing is going to be for, for him. But if he makes a significant mistake, he very well could get derailed. So it's going to be interesting to watch. I'm excited to see how Johnny Isaacson handles it. I was on his town call, town call, geez, town hall right before this, um, before we recorded. And a couple of people were asking him about Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. And Johnny Isaacson said something to the effect of it's one of the greatest responsibilities that the Senate holds. And he seemed pretty excited to be involved in the process. And then he got ragged on by, you know, people saying, you guys need to ask real questions. So I'm excited to listen to the rest of that call and see what actually happened if he actually responded to those. Yeah. Uh, but it sounds like it's going to be an interesting process. Yeah. And I'm happy you mentioned that because it, it's, I, I was struggling for a second to remember two other important points I wanted to mention. One, throughout the day, uh, right at the beginning, there was a lot of people protesting. And throughout the, the hearing, there was... Uh, in the background, you could just occasionally hear someone yelling something. I could never make out what they were yelling, but I'm assuming they were not uh, heaping praise on Kavanaugh. Um, and then the the other uh, interesting thing that I saw was that the Republicans really, really hit on the fact that Democrats' main complaint was that they wanted the judiciary to handle a lot of issues that should be handled by the political system. And they wanted the judiciary to make a lot of policy decisions such as dark money uh, or campaign finance in general, uh, remaining to uh, you know protect Obamacare and uh, gerrymandering. All those things came up as places where they wanted the judiciary to or or where republicans were making the argument that democrats wanted uh the judiciary to be more activist and uh take a more active role in changing the current status quo of how um, american politics work and i i was interested in hearing that just because as someone who is in law school and uh kind of obsesses about how judges should act their argument was well well put um to say the least not not that i entirely agree with it but i think it's a a strong argument from from them and i'll be interested to see uh how how that develops uh, going into the rest of the hearings well a lot to look forward to the rest of the week with these hearings um so i think we'll leave that discussion there but these are hearings that i'm sure we'll be checking in back on as the hearing stage concludes and we head towards a confirmation vote most likely for brett kavanaugh to take a seat on the court uh, but with that i think we're going to leave that discussion there for the week um so luke thanks again for joining peach pod always happy to be here and megan great to be with you again Thanks. It was great to talk to you guys. And we'll leave it there and we'll talk to you all next week. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.